It says in the Bhagavad Gita, whenever vice is in the ascendant and virtue declines, I incarnate myself as an avatar and bring and punish vice, punish evil, and bring virtue up, set it on its throne again. I'm paraphrasing. The idea of vice is not equivalent to that which a vice squad goes after. What it really means is when ungodliness is in the ascendant and uh, go uh, godliness and God is, begins to be forgotten. And there are two ways that these things happen. One is in a mass way and the other is in the particular. At this time we have the, both the mass and the particular. The avatar, <clears throat> an avatar is one who has achieved oneness with God, has overcome all his past karma, has no need to come back to this world, except that he maintains a desireless desire, as Master described it, to help people. And these are people like Buddha, Shankaracharya, other great souls who come from time to time because mankind has forgotten what the purpose of life is. When Buddha taught, he was trying to get people away from believing that uh, they could get everything they wanted from the gods by just performing ceremonies, the karmakand of the Vedas. And he, like Krishna also in the Bhagavad Gita, spoke against this kind of dependence on the Vedas. It's a very interesting thought to begin with, why would the Vedas give ceremonies, which they did, for conquering your enemy, for achieving success in this world, for having uh, children, for having a wife or a husband, for fulfilling your worldly desires? And Master explained that the, the rationale behind this is that people would seek these things anyway, but if they seek them from divine source, they will remember that they got that from the divine source and their gratitude will go back more to God than to their own power, for example, to accomplish and to uh, achieve victory and success. And so Buddha, when he came, talked against that. The Vedas actually are very deep scripture and it's hard to tell from our point of view because the words have been translated in different ways and they have changed their meaning. For example, uh, and this was some of the research that Sri Aurobindo did, that um, the, they talk of cows, but cow has another meaning. It means light. Go means light and not just cow. And people have translated the Vedas into modern times. They've forgotten that. The Shankaracharya of Kanchipura, of uh, Govardhan Mat, explained that in the Veda on mathematics, it says, in the reign of King Kangsha, there was pestilence, bloodshed, and famine. And he thought, well, what has this got to do with mathematics? And he meditated on it and looked in ancient dictionaries and realized that it was, in fact, a very deep and practical mathematical formula. But words have changed so much that people have forgotten those meanings. The best thing you can do is look at the Upanishads, which are the uh, sort of essence of the Vedas. 
and the Vedanta, which means the end of the Vedas, and then the best of all the Upanishads, and that which contains the essence of the Upanishads, is in the Bhagavad Gita. And so it is that if you read the Bhagavad Gita and understand it in, uh, to its depth, you have the essence of Hinduism there. And in this statement of an avatar being born, Buddha came to correct that mistake. But people, thinking that Buddha was talking against doing uh, ceremonies and being helped by the gods and so on, ended up thinking that his teaching was atheistic. He didn't speak of God because he wanted people to understand that uh, <clears throat> their duty was to do what they could themselves. They have to use their energy. And most people were just trying to recite magical formulas that would attract some sort of divine blessing. Well, this wasn't enough. And so Buddha did know God because, of course, he, he had to. He could not have expressed compassion and infinite love and kindness had he been basing his consciousness on nothingness. It's an absurd thought. But in fact, Buddhists, in not Buddhism, but Buddhists, like not Christians, but church, not Christianity, but churchianity, people have lost sight. People lose sight again and again of their original teaching. And so people who were Buddhists, but not true followers of Buddha, as Christians are very rarely true followers of Christ, they thought that Buddha was an atheist. Well, therefore, Swami Shankaracharya came, and he, um, I'm going to, th I can think better if I'm sitting. I think I will sit. <clears throat> okay. <laughs> But I refuse to think I'm an old man. <laughs> I mean, 83 isn't old. <laughs> anyway, um, when uh, Shankaracharya came, he said that there is God. There is a God, but he is not Shiva or Shankara, I mean, or uh, Krishna or Lakshmi, or all those different gods in the pantheon of Hinduism. Those are only names of different qualities of the divine. But that the essence of God is Satchitananda, ever-existing, ever-conscious, ever-new bliss. And then his followers, because mankind is always translating these things into his own lower terms, lower understanding, and so people took his teaching because he said, all life is a dream. There's only one reality, and that is Satchitananda. And so people began thinking, well, if it's all a dream, then it doesn't matter what I do. And like many Christians who think, how, can, how bad can I be and get away with it? The followers of Shankara were thinking, it's all a dream. It doesn't matter if I uh, do various things that are undharmic because it's all a dream. And so it was that Ramanuja had to come and explain that the soul is a very reality, a real thing, and it has to be, we have to evolve to that state of Satchitananda. It is a dream, yes, but we're, we have to get out of this dream, and while we're in this dream, it's very real to us. As Master used to say, 
if you hit your head in a dream, you will hurt your dream head. <laughs> so you can't just dismiss it by saying it's all a dream. <clears throat> and then uh, there was a lack of devotion even in that thought. And so Chaitanya came in to, exp to express the need for devotion, the need for love of God. As Sri Teshwar, who was a, an avatar of wisdom, if ever there was one, he said that you cannot advance a single step on the path until you have developed the, heart, the natural love of the heart. It's not uh, to have faith <coughs> without devotion is like um, knowing that they're like living next door to a restaurant, a famous restaurant, and you know all about it. You know its menu and you know how many people go there, but you're never hungry enough to go. You'd rather have pizza. Well, without devotion, you may know all the truths, but you won't make the effort to find the truth. And so you will go on in delusion. But then the trouble with the, with the uh, um, teaching of Chaitanya, not a teaching, but mankind and his interpretation of it. Prabhupada, in fact, of Swami Bhaktivedanta, came to America absolutely convinced that anybody who chants Mahamantra will be saved. And so he accepted anyone and everyone. And they were, some of them were criminals and some of them were dope peddlers and all sorts of things. He took everybody in. But it's not enough to do something without the mind being behind it. He thought that the mantra itself would purify. Again, a misunderstanding. And at the end of his life, he said to a friend of mine, Ellen Ginsberg, where have I gone wrong? Well, he had gone wrong in thinking that man could be automatically changed. We have to do it with our desire. And you can warble till your heart breaks and still you won't find the truth until you've put that heart in the right direction, sending it toward God. And so again and again, people lose touch with the reality and forget what it's all about. The Christian faith has also lost a great deal of its original teaching. I think that if Jesus Christ were to be born today and, let us say, live in New York, they wouldn't waste 33 years stringing him up. <laughs> Why waste all that time? They'd do it now. Like my book, Do It Now. <clears throat> and so we have to understand that uh, all these teachings, man is the one, Christianity, as I said, became churchianity. All teachings are corrupted by man. And so by that degeneration, gradual descent of understanding into darkness, these great masters are brought again and again. Babaji uh, told Lahiri Moshe, Lahiri Moshe told Sri Yukteswar, who told Master, <clears throat> that Jesus Christ had appeared to Babaji in the Himalaya, and said, what has happened to my church? He said, they're doing good work, but they've forgotten the essence of my teaching, which was communion with God. He said, let us send someone to the West to bring that teaching back again. And Sri said to Master, you are that one that Babaji said he would send. This is an important understanding. Master said that he had come to bring back the original Bhagavad Gita and the original teachings of Jesus Christ.
And these teachings, <clears throat> when Jesus talked of heaven, usually he was speaking of oneness with God, not that heaven where people fly around with wings, which of course they don't have, but nonetheless, it's a convenient myth also. So many myths build up around Christianity. I was saying to someone today, do fairies have wings? I don't see how they could. Anyway, the <clears throat> the uh, when Jesus uh, when Jesus spoke of the parable of the mustard seed, he said the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. It starts as a little thing and it grows and grows and grows and becomes a whole tree. Well, what has that got to do with the astral world? Nothing. But it has a great deal to do with the expansion of consciousness until you embrace all creation. And so your consciousness, as you live a virtuous life, expands and gradually includes a feeling for other people, a desire to help them, and a feeling of uh, their happiness being a part of your happiness. And so your consciousness expands in time to embrace everything. But what Master, when Master came, he came at a particular time when this need is um, worse than ever, you might say, for certain basic reasons, and that is that mankind has so fallen so far into materialism the whole Western civilization, I'll get into the kind of age we're in, as most of you already know it, so I'm going to merely be repeating things that most of you know. But uh, the age in which we're living is a shift of consciousness toward energy from matter. But the problem, the seeds of difficulty in the West began centuries and centuries ago with Aristotle, who, who said that who tried to give us absolute truths. And all Christian dogma is based on the thought of absolute truths. There can't be anything absolute. A dogma is only like a python that a mountaineer uses to climb from one level on a mountainside to a higher level. And once he's reached that higher level, he has to take it out and try again. And when he reaches the top, then he has no use for the python. He can throw it away if he wants. And so it is that we must understand that uh, dogmas are a help because they help us to get out of a certain level. In fact, relativity is the essence of morality. There is the uh, uh, teaching of Adam Smith, who horrified everybody because he said that naturally people are out for themselves, a person becomes a baker or a boot black or whatever because he wants money for himself. He's not doing it to help other people. And uh, I have analyzed this thing in my uh, book, um, uh, Hope for a Better World. And I pointed out that this is certainly true. There's no point in getting outraged. People are basically selfish. But there is such a thing as expansive selfishness and contractive selfishness. For example, let us say, and this is an example that I've given in my book, Joe Baker may be, uh, uh, there may be two bakers in a town. One would be Joe Baker, who is only thinking of himself. And anybody who comes into his store, he's only thinking of him in terms of the money you'll get out of him. And so he doesn't think in terms of what kind of uh, 
bread the other person, the customer, would like. He just thinks of, uh, like a woman in Taormina in Sicily said to me, and this was a very interesting story, because I went to her shop wanting a hat. It was very hot outside. And uh, I said, well, which I usually I don't wear hats. And so I said, what hat do people usually like? And uh, she said, I don't care. I just take their money and let them go. That's all I'm interested in is their money. And I said to her, well, what a waste of your day. I said, you've got the opportunity to make friends with people. And said, all you think of them is what their money they're going to pay on the counter. What do you do, go home and have nightmares? This is not, this is, you're wasting a whole day like that. And I was very frank with her. And I thought, well, I've lost that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, <clears throat> I came back there the next day, next year. And I was going to pass her shop because I didn't have any interest in it. And she happened to be outside, and she came over with tears. And she kissed my cheeks, as they do in Italy. <laughs> <laughs> and she was so friendly to me. And I happened to, because I had come back to the hotel, they gave me a, glass, a bottle of wine. Well, I don't drink wine, so I thought to give it to her. And... Uh, I gave it to her, she was weeping. But my statement to her completely changed her life. She was thinking in terms of other people. Well, this is an enlightened selfishness when you think of making other people happy instead of just what you can get out of them. And so we have William Crumpet. And uh, I may have the names wrong from my book, doesn't matter. Anyway, William Crumpet has the same job, the same business, makes the same things. But when his customers come in, he greets them like friends. And he asks them if there's anything that they would like that he could make for them that he hasn't made. And he asks after their families and so on. Who's going to go to his shop as opposed to Joe Baker? Obviously, they'll go to his shop because he's treating them like human beings. And so Joe Smith is perfectly right, but he doesn't bring in the human element. The human element is that the more you think of other people, the more they will think of you. The more you give to other people, the kinder they will be to you. People who say, I'm not, I feel unloved, don't worry about that. Just love people. They will love you if you love them. It's a simple formula, and it never fails. If you are kind, people will be kind. But you have to expand your consciousness, and so we find that the teaching of uh, absolutism, which became materialism, which became complete selfishness. These things finally ended up in 1920, uh, the time that Master came to this, to this country, as a desperate need. Because, first of all, there was the materialism. Science has created a materialistic attitude toward life. Many scientists think that we aren't conscious. What kind of consciousness they use to make such a statement, I don't know. <laughs> it seems kind of a, a ridiculous uh, contradiction in terms, but there they are saying it. In fact, the, uh, I've reached the point where I don't have too much faith in science. It's changing its mind every 10 years or so. Basic teachings, even of, of a Darwin, which is one of the basic dogmas of modern science, now they're questioning it. Well, I questioned it in my book, on uh, uh, Out of the Labyrinth. I said that it's maybe true, everything that he's saying, 
but it tells you the how of it. It doesn't tell you the why of it. And I remember I went to a, a uh, Jewish scholar, Leon Kolb, his name was. He was retired from Stanford University. But I had heard that he had also studied uh, anthropology, and I wanted, thinking he was religious, that I wanted him to endorse what I had written on uh, Darwin and evolution. And he, in fact, was absolutely in the camp of Darwin. And he denounced vigorously everything that I was trying to say to him. He said, it's completely accidental, and he was shouting. And I said, well, look, I'm not disagreeing with you, but I would like you to read what I said. All right, I'll read it, but it's completely accidental. And uh, so anyway, I let him read it. And a couple of weeks later, I phoned him, and he said, come over, come over, I want to see you. So I came over, and he greeted me at the door. He said, this is wonderful. He was from Romania, so he had a strange accent. And I'm from Romania, but I don't. And <laughs> anyway, he said, this is wonderful. You have not contradicted anything Darwin says, but you have given it meaning. We must spread this message everywhere. And it's true. The same truths that science avers as truth are not necessarily the last word. You have to see things from different angles. And what I've done in that book, and I still think of it as one of my most important books, even though most devotees haven't read it, but I am very much in favor of it because it shows... It shows how using the same logic as all these atheists and nihilists and uh, scientific materialists and so on, using their logic, not my logic, I have shown that there is another way of looking at everything which gives everything meaning. And I tell you, that was a very difficult book to write because I started writing it because there was an article I saw in... Span magazine. It was the USIS uh, magazine in India. <clears throat> and the article was by uh, the head of the philosophy department at MIT. And he was explaining how all modern thinking is based on science and leads people to the inevitable conclusion that there is no meaning in life, there is no purpose in life, there is no meaning in evolution, there is no purpose in anything. There's no consciousness in anything. The consciousness is just a product of the brain. And he went on and on and on with this dribble. You've all read it. But I thought, what a good idea it would be to contest this with the knowledge I have of Master's teachings. And so I went, when the SRF threw me out, this gave me, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. But one of the good things that came of it, that it gave me the freedom to do study to write this book. It took me quite a few years to write it. And it took a lot of willpower because I had to sort of, as it were, go into the camp of the enemy and try to understand everything from their point of view before I could answer it. So I could use their logic against them instead of my logic. My logic they wouldn't listen to, but their logic they had to listen to. And so I... Um, when I finally wrote that book, I felt this is the basis for anything more that I can teach. So the teaching that has come up into this century is exacerbated by another fact, and that is that, and this is this teaching of Sri Yukteswar and of India from ancient times, and it isn't just India, every 
ancient country that I know of in the world has had the same idea, the same tradition, that there are four ages of men. Uh, Egypt used to talk of them as men, priests, demigods, and gods. And uh, Greece talked of it as ages of gold, silver, copper, iron. Um, Iran, talk, Persia talked of the same thing. And the American Indians talked of it. And all over the world you find that same tradition. But in India they have kept it alive because, and this is something else to consider, that when a country thinks of God, it will resist the normal disintegration, uh, disintegrating factors of time. As it says in the Bible, if ten good righteous men could be found, Sodom and Gomorrah would not be destroyed. But even ten could not be found. But it's those people, it's people like us, who think of God and believe in God, who are doing who are keeping this country and this world afloat. If it weren't for people who loved God, the world would plunge into great darkness and is plunging anyway. But we need to understand our role in this plunge, and we'll get into that as we go along. As this age passes, what you find is that people gradually... Sri Yukteswar explained it this way, that there is a duel to our sun, Walter Cruttenden thinks he's found the duel in Sirius. I don't know if that's possible. Vyasa says it's impossible. I don't know. But whatever it is, we have a duel, Sri Yukteswar says, and although um, nobody's found a duel, quite a few scientists have said, well, it, the way the outer planets behave suggests the possibility of some other duel to our sun pulling on them. More than that, I can't say. But the dual, as we pass around it, there's a spiritual emanation from the core of our galaxy. Like the heart of a person is his real understanding, not his head, his heart. When, you're, when you understand and accept a thing with your heart, then you know that it's true. When I read Autobiography of a Yogi, it went counter to just about everything I believed intellectually. But my heart knew that it was true. It knew that he was r sincere. I knew it so deeply and so completely that I took the next bus from New, from New York all the way to Los Angeles. And when I met Master, I said, I want to be your disciple. And he accepted me in that meeting. And I've been following him now for nearly 61 years. But that knowledge comes from the heart. From the heart of the galaxy, there is a spiritual ray going out, a spiritual power. And those, when you come closer to it, the power is greater. When you come farther away, it's lesser. I don't know what it says for our solar system. We're on the outskirts of this galaxy. And uh, we may be pretty dark compared to other planets in this galaxy. I don't know, but I assume. Anyway, he said that as we go closer to it, the, the uh, power becomes stronger and man becomes more enlightened. And I understood this myself in Charleston, South Carolina, when I was just 21 years old. And I was trying to understand, what is God? Because I, I, had, I hadn't known whether there was a God or not. But all my research and all my reasoning brought me to this dead end that without God, nothing works. 
And finally, I had to accept the possibility that there, the probability, in fact, the certainty that there must be a God, but if so, what is he? And I came to the conclusion that he must be conscious because otherwise, how would I? I mean, he can't just be a force. There's got to be consciousness there. And in that consciousness, <clears throat> I realized that I must be a part of that consciousness. And if I'm a part of that consciousness, then the closer I come to that consciousness, the more I try to manifest that consciousness, the clearer I will be and the happier I will be and the more I will have of everything that I want that is worthwhile in this world. And I saw that when I drank, for example, I would become less conscious. When I was angry, I would be less conscious. When I fell into worldly desires and worldly consciousness, I became less aware. Whereas when my mind was clear and I was turned toward higher things, I was more aware. And so I realized that the goal of life has to be to attune myself to God, to become more and more in tune with Him. And this insight was so staggering that I resolved from that moment on to give my life to God. I didn't know what I was seeking. I didn't know where I was going. I didn't know what I should do. I knew nothing. I had read no scriptures. I had read nothing about the lives of saints. I didn't know anything. But it made sense to me that this is what ha one has to do. And it made such absolute sense that I decided to de dedicate my life to this search. And, you know, when you've suffered enough in past lives, just a touch of suffering in this life is enough to make you think, I want God. I had not suffered in a normal way in this life, but I had seen the suffering. I had seen the darkness. I had seen the selfishness and the hopeless compromise that most people make in their search for happiness. And I thought, that's not for me. And I decided to become a hermit. Well, I would have been a dud as a hermit because I didn't know what to do. <laughs> but anyway, I was desperate, and God saw my desperation, and this is an example of how he enters our lives and takes over when we give ourselves to him. My father, who was an absolute skeptic about all these things and had a lot of power over my consciousness because I didn't know anything else, he would have certainly tried to dissuade me. My brother has written an autobiography, which won't be published, but it's sort of for the family, in which he said, I didn't even ask my father's permission to go to Yogananda. Well, I can tell you what, his, what he would have said if I'd asked him. Divine Mother helped me out by sending him to Egypt. <laughs> this was before the days of airplanes. <clears throat> they had airplanes, but they didn't fly long distance like that. And my mother was to join him on the ship. And the very day I put her on the ship was the day I found autobiography of a yogi. To me, that is just a sign of divine grace, if ever there was one. I went uptown New York. I went to Doubleday Duran, as it was called then. I found Autobiography of a Yogi. And I took the next bus after reading it across the country and became his disciple. Now, all of these things are a sign at the same time that man has come up, is coming up gradually, and that what I, I was sort of in advance of a few people that way, but more and more, as, this, as our solar system approaches the grand center of our galaxy, more and more people will begin to wake up 
It is said that in Kali Yuga, the Dark Age, Kali means black, literally, the Dark Age, man can only think in terms of solid matter. He can't imagine that matter is not real. In Dwapara Yuga, it is discovered that matter has no reality. It's only a vibration of energy, which, in fact, was discovered. Sri said that Kali Yuga, Dwapara Yuga, the Second Age, uh, the beginning of it was 1900. In 1905, Einstein discovered that matter is energy. This was a major understanding, and many people can't think of it even now. But that understanding will grow. And in Dwapara, in Dwapara Yuga, there will come also an understanding that space is really a delusion. And already we find that we can turn our television on and see what's happening in Pakistan and Siberia, wherever, around the world. We've seen that we can travel around the world very quickly. We can even go to other planets. In Dwapara, they will go to other planets, and it will be a common thing. I think that they will even be able to go to planets in distant galaxies, which, according to science, is not possible. But they won't have to follow the scientific laws. Master said there are shortcuts. <laughs> that some of these UFOs that are coming to this world may be coming from other galaxies, going much faster than the rate of uh, the speed of light because they they don't have to worry about that. S light itself is, itself is traveling through a delusion. And so gradually, we're just at the very beginning of Dwapara Yuga, gradually what we will see is that man begins to understand that space has no reality. In Treta Yuga, Dwapara, Dwa means two, Treta means three, so really, it doesn't have any esoteric meaning, just second yuga, third yuga. But in Treta Yuga, man develops the power to, uh, to see everything as thoughts. Everything is made of thought. That This is a thing that quite a few scientists have said, even in our time, that if it's energy, maybe that energy is just a vibration of thoughts. And as they advance further, they will come more and more to the understanding that uh, things being thoughts, are really, um, time itself doesn't exist. And I've had a very interesting experience with that because there was a, there is a, a Shanghita or scripture written in India in the time of Treta Yuga when <coughs> this Brigu described the lives of people who would be leaving, living even in our time. Time was demolished. He could see this time as Master says in his poem, Samadhi, all thoughts of all men, past, present, to come, are a part of my great consciousness. It's inconceivable for us because we see, see, see things going from here to here to here. Master said that it's just a movie, and you could turn the movie backwards or forwards. This is beyond our present ability to understand. But I can tell you this, that this Brigu Sangita, I found, a ca I found something in... Uh, Barnale in a little town in Punjab, which told me that told me my of my past life, and it said that I lived in Karachi and different things. It was very interesting, tied in very much with my present understanding of what that life should have been. Then it said in this life, he's uh, very he's well known as a teacher of Ashtanga Yoga, that's Patanjali's yoga, that his name is Kriyananda, that he. Uh, um, 
is famous in the world for these things, and it gave certain things for the future, which was astounding. I, in fact, there were several people in the room, and I passed this around because I don't read Sanskrit, but they all had, they all corroborated that yes, that's what it says. It's Kriyananda, written who knows how long ago. This is not something written then; it's a copy of what was written then, but it's still, it's at least a hundred years old and maybe more. Well. <clears throat> Then I went to another se segment of it that I found, and it said, I've already given him a reading. And uh, <laughs> usually what it does is give you your last life, your present life, and your next life. And neither of them gave my next life. But this first, the second reading said the person goes through many lifetimes in the time of Kurukshetra, the Battle of Kurukshetra, which is where the uh, Bhagavad Gita takes place. He was the ruler of a small kingdom in India, and not wanting to be on the wrong side, evidently he lived close to where the Kauravas lived. He had me, uh, he said, I gave my throne to my son and went into the forest and meditated. And it told a number of things, which of course I can't corroborate, although they do correspond to things that I know. Anyway, in this life it said his father named him James. Nobody knew my name was James because People always called me Donald. My full name was James Donald Walters. But how he knew James? He said he was born in Romania, grew up in America. His, uh, he, he has two brothers, but no sister is possible, although one will die in his mother's womb. And I asked my mother when I got home, have you ever had a miscarriage? She said, yes, I had one. Well, we can assume it was that girl. I don't know. Um... It said that <coughs> that uh, there would uh, he would take the name Kriyananda and his name the name of his guru would be Yogananda, and it said that in the first part it said that he would wander through eight lives until he had encountered Yogananda, and he would be his guru and he would free him. Well, all these things are so amazing, and he went on to talk about the future, and he said there is. I've given him so far the fruits of his good actions. Here are the fruits of his bad actions. And among those was the possibility of um, sudden death. And in fact, there were several times in my life when I could have easily died. There was one time out of the desert in 29 Palms where a flock of crows flew around my head and I thought, well, this, isn't, this has to be a bad omen. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't know what it was, but... Two days later, I'd been sleeping out on the terrace. Two days later, when I went to make up my bed, I found a squashed black widow spider between the sheets. So evidently, it was supposed to kill me, but it didn't. And another time in India, I was setting up a microphone for Diamata for a big function on Master's birthday. And uh, all of a sudden, I, I grabbed this microphone, and all of a sudden, there was a short, and the electricity, 220 volts, went right through my body, lifted me off the ground, and uh, in that split second, the fuse blew. It took them a few hours to find a new fuse, and for a few days after that, my heart was quite restless, but at least I didn't die. And a third time, <clears throat> I was on, I had bought a lambretta in Italy, and uh, I, it arrived in India, and I was in a courtyard with high brick walls all around, not very far away. And I didn't know how to work it, but I turned the key on and didn't realize I was sitting on it. And I didn't realize that the thing was in gear. 
and it suddenly took off at high speed toward this wall. And I had to figure out in that split second between my uh, the start and my hitting that wall how to stop how to get the, to get the thing out of gear and stop it. Well, I did. I stopped that close to the wall, but I'm sure that splat would have ended in my death. Anyway, these things are um, the what Brigu said in those times was astonishingly accurate in my case. I don't know how accurate others have had it. Some have told me they've been very accurate. But I am only using that as an example that in Treta Yuga, that was a descending Treta Yuga, but in Treta Yuga, man develops the ability to te- uh, communicate by telepathy. And uh, he uh, destroys the delusion of time. And in that age, they understand that everything is made of thought. Then the highest age, Satya Yuga, or the age of truth, Man discovers that everything is consciousness and everything is divine. And in that age, if people reach that level, reach that age, many find God then. Will everybody on the planet today be around in Satya Yuga? I regret to say that, well, I asked Master that, and I regret to say that his answer was no. He said, I've told you there are many planets in the universe, and people go where they are drawn by their own magnetism. And so you don't get out of it that easily. The master's explanation was, um, otherwise they would find out too soon. Seems a bit unkind, unfair, (laughs) something or other. Why can't we find out so soon? But God has two games he's playing. One is that which pushes everything out into creation. That is a satanic force. And that other side is divine love which pulls everything back into him. God is impersonal. And this force which pushes everything out is that which keeps this creation going. But for you and me who get caught up in that force is not so nice. We can suffer a great deal. And it's suffering that drives people to God. But anyway, right now, we are on the ascending age. As the planets in the solar system pull away from that, so they fall back into a descending satya, descending treta, descending guapara to the depths of Kali Yuga. Now the nice thing about all this is that Kali Yuga is the shortest. It's 1,200 years, descending and ascending. In those 1,200 years, life seems very long. Time seems to take forever. But in actual objective time, it's very short. Dwapara Yuga, the ascent time, is... Uh, 2,400 years, Treta Yuga 3,600 years, Satya Yuga 48, and Satya Yuga ascending and descending. So Satya Yuga altogether is twice 4,800 years. Well, all these to say that we are in a time now of much greater consciousness, much heightened consciousness, and as a result, Even our Kali Yuga tendencies, Kali Yuga thinks that everything is fixed and firm, that matter is solid, dogmas are solid, principles are solid, uh, systems are solid, everything has to be fixed and perfect. Tradition is fixed in every way possible. And we have to understand that the 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 Yuga that we are in because it was coming out of Kali Yuga, 
there is a shandya between the Kali and the uh, uh, Dwapara. The shandya means a uh, crossover, like a bridge. So um, the Dwapara began in the first shandya of it. It began in the year 1700 A.D. It's close enough. The actual year was 1699, but when it rounded out to our level of understanding. So 1700. And there is a 100-year Shandhya in, in Kali Yuga where it's begin, Earth is beginning to come out of that. And that is the, six, the 17th century, 1600 to uh, 1700. And you see in that age that they discovered Galileo was uh, excommunicated because he uh, thought that the, or said that the world goes around the sun and they said, this is not possible. People in Kali Yuga saw, I mean, after all, you look at it, the sun is going around the world. The planets are going around the world. Everything's going around the world. We're the center of it all, aren't we? <clears throat> that's what our sen senses tell us. But it's a very interesting thing. Now that we know that that's not true, we've come to the point where we discover that it is true in a different way. Because reality, consciousness, is center everywhere, circumference nowhere. So in fact, not this earth, but you yourself as an individual are the center of anything you can ever know. And if you want to know truth, you've got to begin with yourself, and that's where science has gone wrong. It's trying to understand outside instead of inside. You have to go where you are. I've used the illustration of the lake that is frozen over. If you have a thick, thick coating of ice, nothing could push that ice through so that you could break through into the lake underneath. But you can drill at one point and get through the ice and then melt into the water. And so this is also true, that if you go to this little point of reality as your own ego and trace that back to its source, then you discover that you are the infinite who became the ego. So the whole job, spiritually speaking, is to overcome the ego, to overcome this thought that I am separate from you and that my what is good for me is uh, uh, all that matters. And if it's bad for you, it's no problem of mine. But in the Indian scriptures, there's a beautiful story of uh, Kartikayan, Kartikaya, Kartika, Kartikaya, I'm sorry. And uh, he came to see the Divine Mother, his mother, and uh, she said, uh, he, she, she was bleeding on her back. And he said, Mother, what did, who did this to you? I'll get after him. And she said, you did it, my son. He said, I'd never do such a thing. Yes, there was a cat outside, and you beat it to get it out of the way. And when you beat that cat, you beat me. And so the divine consciousness is in everything. But you can only understand it from your center. The more you know of yourself, the more you can feel other people's feelings. People who are blind in this way don't feel anybody's feelings. The more they, other people hurt, they just don't, they don't feel. And so they can't understand that the suffering they inflict on others, they are inflicting on themselves. But as a person becomes more sensitive, he begins to feel other people's pains. His ego begins to expand. We've got to understand that the entire spiritual path 
is a matter of overcoming the ego. So it is that when people insult you, instead of getting all angry about it, that'll affirm your ego, won't it? Why not thank them? Thank you for reminding me that I am not perfect. Thank you for telling me that I have to think of something higher. Thank you for being so so unkind to me because that reminds me that you that there's nothing here to be unkind to. I had a very interesting experience many years ago <clears throat> where I was host hosting quite a few famous people at a dinner and they were all talking to each other and ignoring me. And I might have thought, well, good heavens, I'm I'm also well known. I, good heavens, I'm hosting this dinner. What are they doing talking to each other? Instead, I felt absolutely blissful to realize that I was not important enough to them to be taken into account. It was a good reminder that I'm not this body anyway. Some One time after a Zen Buddhist installation of the uh, uh, Zen master, whatever they call him, <clears throat> I was talking to a young woman, and I asked her, what's your name after a while? And she told me, and she said, what's your name? And I said, Swami Kriyananda. She said, Swami Kriyananda, but you're famous. I said, well, okay, but why do you say but? I, maybe I'm famous, but why do you say but? And she said, but uh, all the other famous people I've known seem important. <laughs> well, I knew what she meant was seem self-important, but I enjoyed her. I enjoyed what she sounded like she was saying, because I'm not important. I like being unimportant. I remember also Ian Fleming, the creator of the Bond stories, who said of fame, it was fun for a while, but now it's just ashes, old boy, just ashes. You can't go into a restaurant with everybody looking without everybody looking at you. It just becomes a nuisance. But in fact, if you think of yourself as unimportant, there's so much freedom in it. If you think that people don't owe you anything, there's so much freedom in it. Nobody owes you anything. You owe it to them. You owe it to the universe. You owe it to God to serve others. Don't think, what am I getting out of this? Think, what am I giving to this? Bit by bit, we need to overcome this thought which says, what about me? Why am I not considered important by others? Why am I not uh, successful? Don't worry about those things. Do your best. This is why the teaching of the Gita is nishkam karma, action without desire for the fruits of action. The more you can give up the wish to do anything, just serve, serve God, you will find that sometimes you will be successful, sometimes you will fail. In fact, the colossal irony of this universe is that it is based on the principle of duality. And that means that every success you have has to be balanced by a failure. Every happiness you experience in the senses outwardly has to be balanced by a sorrow. Every fulfillment has to be balanced by a disappointment. And is it not an irony to think that all these lives you're working to finally get it together and the sum total of everything has to be zero? It can't be anything else. Everything has to cancel everything else out. And finally the soul says, I've had enough of this. It's not working for me. And that is suffering. When you know that all the things you're trying for, they're never going to give it to you. 
and you know that all your ambitions and desires and everything, they'll end in nothing. They'll take you nowhere. And when you get this understanding, then you begin to think, I must get out of this, as, Sri, as Krishna put it in the Bhagavad Gita, Go, Arjuna, get away from my ocean of suffering and misery. We need to get away from this world because although, yes, we have our ups and we're happy with them, they're always going to be balanced by a down. And it's not as if anything will ever take you completely down. The people who died in German concentration camps must have thought that it was the bottom had fallen out of their lives. But they'll they'll be compensated for. They'll have an, either they're paying for some past indulgence or they'll have a future reward. All these things happen, but they're always temporary. Even the rewards of heaven are temporary. As long as you have any desires, you will come back again and again and again <laughs> into this world. And how long do you keep coming back? In the Gita it says, and in the Rubaiyat of Omakayam, as Master interpreted it, it also says that at the beginning of a day of Brahma, when all of creation is brought into manifestation, all those souls, most of those souls that are brought out at that time are still wandering in delusion at the end of that time. How long is a day of Brahma? A few billion years. And you will, how many days of Brahma do we have to live through? It's no joke. All this, and finally you have to wake up and realize it was nothing. But you know the beautiful thing is that no one has ever found God and remembered all those past lives and said, what a scam. <laughs> Everyone has said it was worth every moment of it because the joy that you find when you find God is so absolute that nothing else matters anymore. You can remember those sorrows as if you were living today, it's not as if you'd no longer suffering and so you'd forgotten. You have clear memory of everything that you ever went through, but it means nothing. It's like a book in which someone has been born to all misfortunes and then at the end finally works his way up to great success and you think, oh, that's a good story. And you wouldn't like the story if he was born to success and born to fulfillment and born to everything and everything worked well for him. But uh, where we have to go, you wouldn't like such a book. The excitement of this world is the constant, will it happen, will it not? Will that horse win, will it lose? Oh, this excitement. But the more you get caught up in it, the more you suffer also. And sooner or later, it takes five to eight million lives to reach the human level. Because there is consciousness everywhere. Master said, that every atom is dowered with individuality. Consciousness is not reason. They, I've read about people trying to think in terms of computers' rights. Ridiculous. Computers may indeed be able to reason better than you can if they're properly programmed, but that doesn't mean anything. It's the feeling the aspect of it. When you're feeling, you can never, you'll never get a, a computer or never be able to create Artificial intelligence in this sense, that it has feeling and that it has the sense of I. Everything is born of that sense of self, therefore the expression self-realization. 
when you realize who you are, you suddenly realize that you are that which created the entire universe. And you know, it seems so far off, but it's very close. We just have to make a little bit of effort and we're there. Everybody is a God in um, embryo, you might say. Everybody's working toward that goal. Very few people know it. One time somebody said to Master, I don't think I have very good karma, Master. Master said, remember this, it takes very, very, very good karma even to want to know God. But it takes five to eight million lives and you have to work your way up from the rock. Gradually you become a worm or an amoeba or whatever it might be and gradually work your way up to the human level. Once you've reached the human level, you very rarely fall. But can you fall? <laughs> yes, unfortunately you can. The, you've heard of horses and dogs that are able to spell words. They're fallen souls. These are not unusual in the sense of uh, that horses too have the capacity to be human. It's that humans have fallen to that level. But if you do fall, because you live a very animalistic life, that'll only be for one life and then you come back to this level again. But if you fall repeatedly, and some few souls do, but in this vast universe with countless trillions of souls, I mean, don't think this earth is the only world with, with life on it. Life is everywhere. I've even heard but don't know that Master said that there's even life on the sun with gaseous bodies. I can't say if that's so, but it fits. Because there's life, there's consciousness everywhere. God is everywhere. And where there's consciousness, there has to be life. It doesn't wriggle, but it has to be life. <laughs> and so, <clears throat> when you do fall, usually it's only for one lifetime. But if you continue to live an unspiritual life, you can be thrown farther down. And you, it's a great suffering to have to come up when you know that there's something more that you ought to be and you can't reach it. You have a body that won't permit you to be that. It's a great suffering to be born in a lower form. And how low can you fall? Master said all the way down to the level of a germ. Don't, don't play with this thing because people can say, well, it's all God, I'll get there sooner or later, so let me just live as I want to. It, it's not a safe thing. You don't know what you're going to do. You may be born in another lifetime where every influence pushes you toward evil. Take the advantage that you have right now. It takes very good karma even to be a human being. And once you are in a human body, make the best of it. Because in some ways, this, this whole universe, this creation of God, is a nightmare from our point of view, not from the divine point of view, but from ours, we go backward as well as forward. So make the effort now to seek God. If you're at a germ level, think of all the lives you have to come up through until you reach the human level again. This universe is so vast and so complex. Master said in the Gita, it says, and Master was explaining that in his commentaries on the Gita, that the, there are whole galaxies that are uh, the three basic gunas that everything is a manifestation of. Master described the gunas as a wave on the ocean. 
the, a little bit of a wave is satvaguna, a little protrusion from the bosom of the ocean. When the wave becomes more pushing outward and forgetting its source, it becomes rajaguna, activity. It becomes very active, and it, you, you can't tell when the ocean is heaving up and down that there's what's underneath it. There's nothing peaceful. It's all, all agitation. But in the <coughs> tamoguna, the waves are very high and very far uh, removed from the ocean bosom. And as the Gita says also, that I am present in creation, describing the three gunas, I am present in creation as the <coughs> smoke is hidden, I am present but hidden in creation as the smoke hides a fire, as uh, uh, the reflection is hidden in a mirror, in a metal mirror that can become rusted, as the baby is hidden in the, in the womb of the mother. These are the three gunas. The, when only sattva guna is there, it's a little puff of meditation and you can easily uh, disperse it. When tamoguna is there, rajaguna is there, I mean, the activity, there are two rajagunas, and they correspond all the, also, therefore, um, to the four castes, uh, the four stages of life and the four castes. It's uh, all tied together. In the four castes, you have the shudras, who are just sort of like animals who have come up for the first time, and all they can think of is their bodies and the pleasures of the body. Then, gradually, as a person, <clears throat> or a soul, if you want to call it that, evolves. The soul doesn't evolve, but we can call it that. As the consciousness evolves, then you begin to realize you've got intelligence, and so you begin to think of how do you how you can use this intelligence to get yours, and so you become a vaishya, and the vaishya is a mind you there even in ancient India there was a much more complex social system than farmers merchants soldiers and priests these were epitomizing only those states a farmer is someone who basically has to work with the soil but he may be a saint he may be a very educated and refined person. There's nothing to say that a farmer has to be that. It's that that often will be. It epitomizes that state of consciousness. A merchant may be a very spiritual man, but epi uh, the basic merchant would be what they call in India, Pakabanya, a real cunning person who's only out for himself. And uh, <clears throat> I know when I was trying to get land in uh, the Delhi green belt of area of New Delhi and there was a man who came to me there was a yoga ashram across the road from where I wanted to be and this man was a pakabanya and he said Swamiji I can get that ashram for you he said all you need to do is get enough members because I've looked at their bylaws you can have enough members and I can vote them out and put you in charge and I told him, I don't want it on those terms. I'm not going to take something away from somebody else. He couldn't believe that I, was in, that I meant it. And one day he came to me and said, Swamiji, the ashram is yours. I said, I don't want it. I told you I don't want it. I want nothing to do with it. He just went away shaking his head. He couldn't figure out what I was saying. But a curious thing, Tara, when she threw me out of SRF, said, you'd stop at nothing short of murder to get what you want. 
She didn't know me at all. I wouldn't do anything that was against dharma. And I would rather fail as I did fail in that case, but I, it was a great victory for me. It's that I, when I was told that I can't get land in the Greenbelt area, I said, I will, by my will, I will make it happen. But I was putting my will on the Indian government. I wasn't putting it on SRF because I thought they'd be th thrilled to get land there. And when I got that land and Nehru himself walked the land and gave me that permission, which 1,700 other organizations had tried to get and all been turned down, that was the cause of my dismissal from SRF. They were just horrified at what I had done. I hadn't put my mind there, and that was my fault. But it was the best thing that ever happened. Since then, I've been able to do, well, this, <laughs> among many other things. <laughs> <coughs> and so, <clears throat> with that, where was I? What? Yes, this Spaikabanya tried to give me that ashram by voting the other people in power out. I wouldn't do anything with that. So there are two levels there. There's the 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 Pakavaisya, and uh, then as you become more refined, it's a gradual level. It's not. It's not. And the same thing with the yugas. They're not. They're a gradual trend in this direction. And uh, you will find that the four sh castes are the same as the four yugas. The, uh, and the, four, the, th the three gunas they talk, but there are really four gunas. That guna which pulls the mind down toward tamoguna, and that which pushes it up, those, those actions which are still actions, but which uplift the mind. So see that your actions are sattvic, not tamasic. And that will be the kshatriya, that which doesn't think of the self, but is helping other people. And then you reach the sattvic level, the rasataguna, and the brahmin level, that which thinks of being an instrument for God and seeing everything as a play of God. Well, I've sort of gotten off the subject partly, but to fill you in on the whole story, what happened in 1700 was that we entered into the first chandya of um, Dwapara Yuga. In the first one, there was Galileo, Newton, a gradual consciousness of awakening to uh, testing your truths and the, sci the scientific method and so on. If it's true, I want to find out if it's true. Then from that 1700 on, we see the industrial age, we see people thinking more in terms of machinery. We think of labor-saving gadgets. We have seen gradually an uplifting of consciousness. When Ben Franklin discovered electricity through the, uh, uh, his kite and the lightning, his fellow scientists thought he was mad. They wanted nothing to do with him. But we know now that electricity and energy are the very basis of everything. In fact, I have a, a grand-niece who visited me a year, a year ago. She'll be coming up in a few days, I think. And she told me, she was 19, and she said that the word she hears constantly now is energy. Well, what happens with this is that energy level has been increasing. 
and yet the traditions are there holding us back. And we've got a great pull between these two. And with that pull, energy is also the Satya the Kali Yuga consciousness is also being energized. And so people more rigidly uh, traditionalistic, rigidly fundamentalist, rigidly dogmatic, and so on. And we have come to the point right now where this world is really ready for an explosion between these two forces. And the... Uh, the times that we're in right now, we can see economically things are falling apart. They're going to get much, much, and much worse. I mean, people are going to not have food to eat. How are they going to get food into the inner cities when the outer cities are all there ready to grab it from the trucks? How are you going to get anything when you can't get a job? Your unemployment won't last. How are you going to do anything when the dollar isn't worth the money it's, the paper is printed on? And that's what's coming. Because the government will try to spend its way out, and how can it spend its way out? You know, there are two kinds of taxation. One is the normal one that they can take. But there's a limit to how much they can take that way. There are disadvantages to every system. Democracy is probably the best system we could have right now. But it's not by any means uh, unflawed. Its greatest flaw is that people who are elected try to please those who are voting for them. And how do they please them? By promising them benefits. And how do they promise them benefits? They'll come out of tax money, but when there's not enough tax money and you've offered them all these things, for instance, unemployment benefits and social security and all the different things that happen, how are you going to pay for it when you don't have that kind of money, when you promise too much? They have promised a great deal too much. Well, somebody discovered not very long ago the joy of derivatives. Do you know that the indebtedness in the world due to derivatives alone is over one quadrillion dollars? We can't pay that off for anything. It's impossible. Nobody likes to talk of it, but it's a great sword of Damocles hanging over our heads. The, we are inescapably heading toward a massive depression. And Master said that this depression will be much greater than the 1930s. And this again is vice. Vice is avarice. And when this avarice grows, God also performs an operation to correct people in their thinking. Master was born at a time when so many great delusions had come up, this thought of matter having the only being the only reality, and the recent discovery only in 1905, he came in 1920, that matter is only energy. We're in a time of great insecurity this way, because the old ways of thinking don't work, and people don't haven't quite adjusted to new ways of thinking. Instead of dogma, there will be a more fluid understanding of things. Instead of thinking Jesus is the only way, you'll understand that truth is what Jesus brought, and truth is universal. And so you can't limit it by a person or a religion or a thing. There's only one religion in the entire universe, and that is that everything has come from God and everything must merge back into God. And whatever planet, whatever galaxy you live in, it's got to be the religion, Sanatana Dharma, the eternal religion. 
This is what Hinduism teaches more than any other system, but Hinduism is full of flaws as a, as a religion. Nonetheless, it's the only religion in the world that teaches moksha, complete liberation, the soul merging back into God. This tradition is in the East, in the West, in Christianity. They speak of marriage with God and so on, the saints. The Catholic Church is closer to the teachings of Christ than the Protestant churches because they have saints, but they're still awfully ignorant. I had a Monsignor come to see me in Italy recently, and he was trying to um, persuade me. And he ended up uh, calling a friend of mine later and saying, would you ask him please to pray for me? But uh, their, their system is extremely narrow. The thought that they, the Pope can be infallible, it's absolutely ridiculous. They speak of Daya as infallible. It can't be. It's an absurd dogma. We're getting away from dogma now. And so the times that Master came into were very needed. Adharma had grown. People had fallen away from the thought of truth and of God into ungodly ways. Darwin taught that evolution is only an accident, but it's not. It's, uh, he didn't take into account consciousness. The teachings of Adam Smith, they're not true if you understand them more deeply that it is true, but you have to understand enlightened selfishness as opposed to uh, unenlightened or egotistical selfishness. And every, the, there are countless errors that have crept into human thinking. Look at the arts, look at sculpture. There was this piece of sculpture that I mentioned, so-called sculpture, that I mentioned in my book, Art is a Hidden Message. In Kauai, there were a bunch of pipes all over this shopping complex, and they looked ridiculous. And I said to somebody, what, what do you have all those pipes are? Why, they're art, don't you understand? Well, I could throw ink at a board and call it art. And people would say, oh, it certainly doesn't look like art. But somebody else would say, what right have you got to intrude with his idea of what's art? So they make art a completely self uh, imaginary thing. It can't be that. There are universal values. There are universal morals. And it isn't that they are absolute. It's a direction. That which makes you more peaceful. That which gives you a clearer mind. That which gives you, which away, touches your heart in an upward way, not a downward, vicious way. That which makes you think in terms of, a, of an infinite truth rather than a narrow truth. This is what good art should do, but it doesn't. It's meaningless. And I think that the time has come now to understand that the arts, sculpture, all the, the music, look at the music, there's no meaning in most of it. You know, the most meaning that I have found in music basically is in popular songs. Because at least people who write popular songs understand emotions like human love and that sort of thing. Whereas the others who try to talk about abstract truths and express that in their music are expressing absolutely nothing. But when you think of a song, Night and day you are the one only you beneath the moon and under the sun. It's a beautiful melody because people can understand human love, but it's only a little drop in the ocean of divine love. And it's time now. I've tried my best with my music to show that music can have meaning. 
And I haven't done it by thinking I want this to go this way. I've just said to God, I want to say this, 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 and this. Give me a melody that says it. And I've gone along with that melody. A very interesting example is my song, um, Cloisters. Long I've called you, my Lord, long I've called you. It was of a, to go with a slideshow that I had taken of uh, the Napoli area. And this was in Sorrento, and there was a chapel there, but it was a tourist chapel. And so I started out with a, uh, but this wasn't reasoned. I, re I saw the reasoning behind it later, but it was God gave me the melody, and then I understood later. But I went with the inspiration rather than, okay, here it is. No, I went with it. I understood what was happening. But this Gregorian style is, Long I've called you, my Lord, long I've called you. Many years I have longed for your sight. Then it was time to break out of it because it was uh, a tourist place now. It's no longer a monastery. So I said, Bathe the darkness with tears of devotion. That tears is out of that mode. It's no longer the Gregorian mode. Offered candles in prayer to your light. You want to repeat that theme to make it understood better. How much longer, friend? Well, there, my exposure, you might say, to modern music made me feel that it ought to go, How much longer, friend? And that wouldn't make sense at all. It would be all emotional and just uncontrolled. So I held it in, and I let the melody go, how much longer, friend, must I cry your name? And then I didn't want to end it. The song didn't want to end itself, is what I should say, on the tonic, as a song usually does. If I had, I would say, I am yours ever yours, will you come? That would have killed it. It had to be something that went off into the distance, into space. So I'm yours ever yours. Will you come? See, there's a reasoning for it. Language, music is the language. And most music says nothing. But if you understand it, and I would love for those of you who think of writing music, think in these terms. Ask God to inspire you. And you will find that the sounds will go in the right way then. It won't be that I think it ought to do this. But you will also work with it. It's not like automatic writing. And you will see that if you do this, that the music, it, the chords of music too. There's so much discord in modern music. But it needn't be. Yes, if you have nothing but uh, plain major chords, it gets boring. But you can do it just as you heard in this song um, that we were just singing uh, this and whispering, there, there are discords there, but they resolve themselves, and you almost, they have to resolve themselves. To go on too long would kill it. So all these things, if you will bring your consciousness in tune with God and with the soul, then in your work, in cooking, in everything, you know, Master loved to cook. He told me that I, it's a form of service. And he said when he cooked, he would taste the food here. And he would just get the right balance, and it would taste very sattvic. It wasn't just his blessings. The balance of everything it was just perfect. And uh, in 
the clothes that people wear, everything. I look at the clothes in fashion magazines and I go, yuck. I think uh, uh, <clears throat> anybody who's stylish has no taste. <laughs> if you really have taste, you'll think, what do I feel? Not what the people tell me I should be doing this year. And so think in terms of that which pleases you, that which gives you peace, that which increases your sense of harmony and happiness. But everything you do can express more of God or less of God. Try to bring him into the picture. This is what I have found in being Master's disciple, that he came at a time when this message was very much needed. There was great confusion in every walk of life. And I have written my hundred and something books to show that he brought truth into every path you can probably write other books on other subjects like education, marriage, and finances, and success in business, and everything. All of these things can be done in spiritual ways. There is nothing that is not spiritual. You can be a spiritual businessman. Rajashi was a self-made millionaire, but he helped people, and he used his money for good. Without money, you can't do anything. You need money. Money's master said the most important quality next to seeking God is the ability to make money. Sounds incredible for a yogi and a monk to say that. But he said that with money you can help people. You can do good in this world. And I myself had no interest in making money. When I was 16, my father offered to buy me a tuxedo. I said, Dad, don't bother. I'll never wear it. In fact, I'll never earn enough money to pay income tax. And he thought I was just having a teenage fad <coughs> phase. But in fact, I met Master, and I, it turned out to be true. But I was against money. But in starting Ananda, I learned how you have to have money to succeed. And there have been plenty of times when Ananda would have failed if I hadn't stepped in and found a way out of it, out of our debts and so on. You know, I think SR spent $50 million trying to destroy us. $50 million, not rupees. We spent 12 million, but somehow Dharma won. I was willing to lose everything rather than go against Dharma. And you will find that Master brought this teaching, how we can bring Dharma into our lives, right living and righteousness into our lives, and how by doing so, we can change everything for the better. We're living in an age of great unrest. We're living in that toss tossing period between Kali and, and Dwapara Yuga, we're living at a time when not only the world will really crash economically, not just America. It'll start with America. It'll go all over the world. It'll be a terrible time for people. There will be weeping in every home. That's what Brigu said, and I think this is what there he was talking about. He also, Master said there will be, and I don't see how there could not be, world war. And there are something like 30,000. This was a figure, Kati Kain, who was the position similar to Edgar J. Hoover in America. He was the head of the Indian equivalent of the FBI. And he told me that there are 30,000 nuclear weapons, known nuclear weapons in the world, not to speak of the unknown. I don't see how we can avoid a nuclear war. I think it'll be worldwide. It can't be long, but it'll be very, very, very destructive.
And will there be more than that? I'm afraid so. Master one time in Hollywood Church said, you don't know what a terrible cataclysm is coming. Cataclysm means something more than man-made. Maybe a heavenly body hitting the earth, whatever it is. We're in for hard times now, and we need to hunker down. And what is the best thing that you can do? You can't eat gold. Wouldn't hurt to have gold. If the paper money won't be worth anything, gold will be worth a lot. But that's not going You can't eat that. The best thing to do is either join a community like Ananda or form a community like Ananda. And Master said this idea of communities will spread worldwide. It will become the pattern for the future. And this is what Ananda is doing, to help people to understand how they can live harmoniously together and grow their own food, live simply, to have no debts. We do have debts, unfortunately, but um, I hope we can get out from under them. I myself have refused to pay, uh, get under debt. One time I found that as, at the end of the year I had paid $2,000 in uh, interest on my credit cards because I had bought equipment for our sound studio. I said, from now on, I'm not buying anything on with a credit card that I can't pay the first month. Some of those credit card interest rates are 44%. Don't get credit cards. If you have the tendency to use them, burn them while you can. Burn them while this talk inspires you to. <laughs> Don't be in debt and get out of it as soon as you can. The mortgages that are now, they're going to escalate. We're coming into a very bad time. But Ananda will offer an answer in how to live, how to live simply. And Master's teachings, which I have expressed in many levels, they show people how to live dharmically. And I think that after this great time of suffering and turmoil, Master himself said, there will be 300 years of peace. And let us help to make those, those years come sooner. People will be so sick of warfare by that time that they won't want anything but living calmly. Okay, well, I guess that's it for today. God bless you. <clears throat>